Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum in this week for Jerome McDonald. One of the things we cover on Worldview is social movements at home and abroad. In the last decade, our world has witnessed calls for deep social change. In recent years, those calls have come to our shores. Further than I thought it would. And I think what the American people are perceiving is there is something very wrong in this country when ordinary Americans are working longer hours for low wages, when we have the highest rate of childhood poverty of any major country on earth, and almost all new income and wealth is going to the top 1%. We need bold changes. We need a political revolution. I believe that in a modern, moral, and wealthy society, no person in America should be too poor to live. That's what I think. That seems simple. Seems pretty simple. So what that means to me is, um, so what that means to me is healthcare as a human right. Um, it means that every child, no matter where you are born, should have access to a college or trade school education if they so choose it. And, um, you know, I think that no person should should be homeless um, if, if we can have public structures and, and public policy to allow for people to have homes and food and lead a dignified life in the United States. Well... That was Senator Bernie Sanders and Democratic nominee for Congress, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. To some Americans, calls for social change has to do with their very dignity, how they're treated when they walk down the street, sleep in a dorm, hold a picnic, or visit the pool. You can understand from our perspective. Have I ever met you before? No. I've never met her before either. So she called us and there was somebody that appeared that they weren't supposed to be where they were supposed to be. I hear you have a problem with these gentlemen having a barbecue here at the lake. Uh, it's illegal to have a charcoal grill in the park here. There's three numbers I could dial. 911. Okay? Get out. In 2016, Black Lives Matter protesters in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, protested unfair police practices that undermined their dignity and civil rights. That movement held echoes from Ferguson, Missouri. Here's organizer DeRay McKesson talking with MSNBC's Chris Hayes. Uh, what we know to be true here in Baton Rouge and, and definitely in, in towns like Ferguson and other cities is that the police are provoking uh, the protesters with the hopes of creating a conflict so that then they can say the protesters were violent. But in Baton Rouge, the only violent people I've seen have been the police. The images out of Baton Rouge uh, have really looked a lot like Ferguson. I mean, obviously, there's been police response to protests around the country, but I haven't quite seen anything quite as militarized, the large vehicles, the very intense gear, uh, the gas masks. I haven't seen anything quite like that uh, in a while since Ferguson. What do you think is driving that? Yeah, so I think that in Baton Rouge, the police are trying to intimidate protesters so they so that they will be afraid to speak out and that people will feel like there's nothing they can do. And I'll tell you, from sitting in that cell for 16, 17 hours, is that if anything, the arrests are actually just making more people confident that they have to speak out, that they must act, and that they have to push back on this police department that is going about their business unchecked. And we know that there's no group of public servants, there's no group of citizens in the country that should be able to operate outside of the confines of the law. And here in Baton Rouge and in other cities, the police essentially can do whatever they want and the law doesn't matter. The same year as the Ferguson protests, a similar movement swept Ukraine. It was called the Revolution of Dignity. For months, several high-profile cases of police brutality raised tensions 
and fear of police. In Ukraine, a second policeman has been named as a suspect in a controversial rape case, and the regional prosecutors requested he be detained. The victim told Euronews that two policemen were involved in the attack, naming Yevgen Drizhak as one of them. Drizhak was not initially held with the other suspects and said he had an alibi. She can barely walk. She keeps giving her statement and repeats the same to reporters. Of course she feels bad, but we hope that tomorrow will be better. Ukrainian journalist Mustafa Nayem made his career covering social movements. In November 2013, Nayem urged his thousands of Facebook followers to meet on Kiev's Central Square, the Maidan, for what he saw as a chance to break Russia's influence and work towards human dignity through the European Union. In the four months following Mustafa's Facebook post, peaceful assemblies transformed into deadly government crackdowns. After the government of Russian-backed President Viktor Yanukovych was impeached, a new government was started from scratch by the revolutionaries. Mustafa Nayem went from being a journalist to a leading member of parliament. Worldview producer Julian Haida was in Ukraine at that time and reported the events as they happened. And Julian sat down with Mustafa while he was in Chicago for a democracy-building event sponsored by former President Barack Obama. They discussed what's happened in Ukraine in the four years since the Maidan. So first of all, I'd like to thank you for joining me here in the studio, Mustafa Nayem. You're credited with starting the 2013-2014 revolution in Ukraine. You posted on Facebook for people to gather on the Maidan, Kyiv Central Square. I don't think most of our American listeners know that you were also born in Afghanistan and you emigrated to Ukraine later. Because of that, are you able to look at Ukraine from an outside perspective. I'm particularly interested if that helps you look at Russia differently too, because for example, Soviet Russia invaded both Afghanistan and Ukraine. Look, I'm not one of those people who has an answer to the question, who are you? I understand that I grew up in Ukraine, but this isn't a question of citizenship. My life is in Ukraine, my friends and family are Ukrainian. Ukraine is where I grew up. Ukraine gave me an education. My child calls Ukraine home. My parents live in Ukraine. This is who we are. I cannot objectively look at Ukraine from the sidelines, because I'm in it. Yes, I was born in Afghanistan. My parents and I moved to the Soviet Union in 1989, and then we moved to Kyiv in 1991 and stayed. It's the will of God that made our family go through this twice. I do not even plan to leave Ukraine. I will not flee. I plan to stay and work in Ukraine. I am afraid that this history will not end with our generation. When it comes to my role in organizing the revolution, all I can say is that people love to think of myths. I am really proud of the fact that our generation values great sacrifice. We finally overcome this deer-in-the-headlights fear of the government. We're no longer afraid to confront the machine and challenge law enforcement. 
Ukraine's reconstruction is very difficult. We will pay for all the victims of the conflict, and we do pay with the instability we live with every day. For example, I'm here in Chicago to participate in a forum organized by former President Obama. He's interested in youth leadership. I don't want to see Ukraine relapsing into blind obedience. I want to see young people who are interested in serving their neighbors. What happened during the revolution, what happened on the war front, is truly service. We must raise a society that's interested in investing in their communities as they are in themselves and take pride in it. I am happiest when I see people thrive on their service to others. This is as good as gold in my book. Is this ambition? Sure. I'm hoping this kind of ambition will be better than those who are ambitious to line their pockets. There are different generations different traditions. I expect that there will be more people like that. So it's been four years since the revolution in Ukraine. Get our listeners up to speed about what's happened then and, and what's happened since. I can say that for four years, and this should be known, there are many steps in the right direction from the institutional things that were built, In the last four years, it goes without saying that there has been a lot of movement in the right direction. I'd like to emphasize this. There's been a lot of positive growth when it comes to institutions which have grown. Institutions have headed in the intended direction for the most part. There's always been great movement with regards to civil society. But many of the things that we accepted as normal before continue. Things like corruption and a broken judicial system. But they are bigger pariahs in society than before. Before we just said, that's how it is and that's how it always will be. Four years ago, there were a lot of people who suddenly wanted to find work in civil and public service. A lot of people saw they could push for change from within the government. You mean after the revolution, right? Yes, even though there's a lot of disenchantment by now, There are still plenty of people who haven't given up, and people who have taken things on are committed to seeing them through to the end. The most productive year was the year after the revolution, when we passed every anti-corruption law. In particular, we passed a law requiring electronic tax filing and the creation of anti-corruption bureau. If you remember, we also completely reformed the police a year and a half after the revolution. We opened many government offices. We reformed the energy industry. But after about two years, we began to see somewhat of a rollback of these policies. Not everything is being rolled back, but the major systemic reforms are under attack. There's a lot of scheming and systemic issues that led to the revolution that are creeping back into the day-of-the-day governance. Things like poor government services, the court system, and just some low-level racketeering 
that make it hard to run a small business, and we've had to work on that again. In the last year, 2016-2017, the lion's share of our efforts have gone into stopping this rollback. Look at what's happening with the Anti-Corruption Bureau. It's under attack. Look at the tax filing system. It is falling apart. Look at how much of the energy industry has reverted to its old ways. There is a general lack of transparency. That's the picture that's being painted. I'm not the kind of person who paints things in black and white. That everything is bad, but we are still pretty far from saying things are good. The most important thing to say that Ukrainians are still very anxious. For most people in Ukraine, life is very difficult. For those within the system and for those following it. In my opinion, the skepticism shown toward reform, resignation, and frustration comes from the people who want to maintain the status quo. Our frustration is the key to their victory, and we can't let that happen. For most people in Ukraine, life is very difficult. So when it comes to reforms, you mentioned the police, energy industry, and we also just saw medical reform pass. I think it'd be really, really interesting to parse through some of the strategies here. For example, here in Chicago, we often talk about police reform, but what does that mean? How can civilians oversee and prevent corruption? These are questions that are happening here in Chicago. Yet there's wide distrust in the police, especially when it comes to the safety of citizens. I think it'd be really interesting to discuss police reform in Ukraine because what's happened there really wasn't reform. It was more of a reboot. Ukraine fired all of its beat cops and started from scratch. Can you tell us what that was like? Я би сказав так, що, знову ж таки, я не хочу зараз займатися популістичними речами і все фарбувати в один колір. Те, що було заплановано в реформі поліції, багато з того вдалося. I don't want to get into policy questions here that paint things in one color or another. A lot of what we did with the police really worked out well. For example, we finally have some positive movement towards social service and public security. But from the criminal end, a lot of the reforms haven't worked out. There's a huge battle between the old and the new. In the last year, there's been somewhat of a rollback in the new police, not because they've gone bad, but because a lot of the recruits had high hopes. We wanted to prove that Ukraine isn't the textbook example of corruption. It's just like any social system that can be rebuilt. If new people become part of the system, they can be different than those who came before them. But we constantly have economic and technical issues. And what happens is that people find it easier to slip back into the old system. Що стосується енергетичної сфери, аграрної сфери, і ви зараз згадали, і медичної сфери, в усіх цих сферах реформи, які закладені, вони так чи інакше мають на меті якийсь позитив. 
When it comes to reforms in the energy industry and the medical sector, we need to underscore that the goal is always positive. For example, we are proud that the reforms weren't intended to be corruptible, as they sometimes are. But when it comes to realizing the reforms, successes depend on the case-by-case victories of those people who want to see the reforms work. Unfortunately, the criminal mind can always find a fault in any reform or any less-than-perfect system. This is the biggest issue with any agency that exists to defend the civil rights of a society. This is the problem with the fight against corruption or criminal justice. Unfortunately, in the last four years, we haven't seen any high-profile prosecutions. This isn't because we want to arrest everybody or because we're bloodthirsty. But that's not encouraging when people see corruption operating on such a high level. Unfortunately, these issues reach the Anti-Corruption Bureau, which doesn't have its own court and faces resistance from the government and administration. So, a lot has worked. There is a lot of frustration. This is true. We're all frustrated. I was involved with the police reform, and you would not believe how I look at this. But at the same time, there are two ways we can go about this. We can give up and get angry, or we can understand the reality, let it sober you up, because we were idealists before, and continue with the matter at hand. So it sounds like society demanded these reforms. And there's also pressure from the outside. There's the U.S., the EU, the World Bank, so on and so forth. Before, there was a complaint that Russia meddled in the internal affairs of Ukraine and didn't respect their sovereignty. It seems that's a really prevalent argument here in the West, that Ukraine has shifted from having a bunch of pro-Russian oligarchs to having a bunch of pro-European oligarchs. Is that a fair characterization? You know, when you say pro-Russian or pro-European, it doesn't really matter. What's more important is the values they demonstrate. The oligarchs who remain in Ukraine have recently begun to raise their hands. Renat Akhmetov continues to have an energy monopoly. TV channels are still run by the same people. Dmitry Firtish continues to operate the gas pipelines. Everything that was true about these oligarchs before is still the case. They haven't changed. The oligarchs haven't become pro-European or pro-Russian. They're pro-money. So we wonder who set the rules of the game. President Poroshenko had the opportunity in his first year to set a uniform policy on how the rich should interact with the government. Unfortunately, they began separate negotiations, informal agreements, privileges, suppression of some and assistance to others, and so on. We have no problem with the wealthy, 
as long as they step aside from the political process and pay their taxes. We're not communists, after all. But what's happened instead is that they've completely permeated the political life. They sit in office, in parliament, and in the government. That was Worldview producer Julian Haida talking with Mustafa Nayem, a Ukrainian-Afghan journalist. He started Ukraine's Maidan revolution four years ago. After the break, they'll continue the conversation about what America and other countries can learn from Russian soft power in Ukraine. I'm Steve Bynum, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum, in for Jerome McDonald. Last week, special counsel Robert Mueller indicted 12 Russian operatives for a cyber attack on the 2016 presidential election. A country that has felt Russia's colonial influence for centuries is Ukraine. Ukraine has declared independence several times over the course of history, but freedom only came in 1991. Despite this, Russia has tried to meddle in every single election. Former Ukrainian President Viktor Yushchenko was recently summoned to the prosecutor general's office to answer question as a victim in the case of his poisoning in 2004. After three and a half hours of questioning, he revealed that there are new members in the investigation team. Before the break, Worldview producer Julian Haidad discussed the legacy of Ukraine's Maidan revolution with Mustafa Nayem, the Afghan-Ukrainian journalist credited with starting it. Julian had the chance to speak with Mustafa because he was invited to Chicago by former President Barack Obama to participate in the Obama Foundation Summit to discuss, among other issues, freedom and democracy. Right now there's a huge conversation here in the U.S. about Russian meddling in local politics and elections and here and, and in Europe. What's interesting to me is that they take local ideological disagreements and use them to flip the script to their benefit. We often hear criticism from the Western far left that Ukraine has a nationalism problem and the Western far right argues that Ukraine has like a race and identity problem, that they're not traditional enough or they're not resisting the liberal freedoms of the West. What's your take on Russia using uh, these international ideological divides to their benefit? 
Ну, дивіться, я думаю, що дійсно ми пам'ятаємо перші роки, коли після війни були такі великі кампанії щодо націоналістів, щодо нацистів, фашистів, бандерівців. Це все ми пам'ятаємо, це було. Ну, це смішно, з огляду на те, що... We know after the war began, there were huge information campaigns that talked about neo-Nazis, fascists, bandarites. We all remember how this was. It's absurd. Especially compared to what's going on in Europe right now, Ukraine is not only a tolerant country, but it's the most tolerant country. If we compare the influence or far-right radicals' influence on Ukraine to their rise in Germany, France, Italy, and Spain, we see that Ukraine is very healthy in that regard. You'll always have elements of society that are sick. This happens everywhere. We see even in the United States. This card cannot be used against Ukrainians. Ukraine has such a diverse collection of nationalities and religions, traditions and ethnicities, and everything that imagining intolerance would be very difficult. There are exceptions, but they are not systemic. The biggest intolerance towards Ukrainians comes from the Russian Federation. All they want is Ukrainians to look backwards, dumb people, which cannot accomplish anything, who are lost, who don't know where to go, begs for money, and is always a mess. This is the image that Russia wants the world to have of Ukraine. The biggest enemy isn't only Russian colonialism, but also years of dysfunction how things were before. Like I said, there's a lot of good things that are happening in Ukraine. Good things are going forward. And politics, first of What do you mean, how things were before? I mean how things were before the revolution, corruption. Politics? Politics, first of course. Ukraine is weird now. The president is trying to control the flow of information. The government wants to lead the discourse, but there are no taboos in Ukraine. I can't imagine journalists doing TV investigations into the government and administration of Viktor Yanukovych, the former president. Every TV station, private, public, state-owned, foreign-owned, is allowed to openly dissent against the president, prime minister, members of parliament, everybody. Always. There's good systemic investigative journalism happening. By the way, your colleagues at NPR are doing some of it. I can't imagine a corrupt ruling politician under arrest under the previous system. That isn't always good, because sometimes these arrests don't result in prosecution. But these things are happening, and they need to be recognized. Дійсно, тверезо підвести якісь риски і сказати, оце погано, оце добре. Отут нам вдалося, а тут ні. Але те, що вдалося, це не означає, що все добре. Це означає, що ми можемо. Оце спроможність і віра в успіх. The biggest problem with Ukrainians, whether it's the political class or people, is to get swept up by emotions instead of even handedly saying something is good or bad. This worked out 
and that didn't. If something worked out, it doesn't need to mean it's worked out well, but it tells us at least we are capable of changing something. This initiative and faith in success, historic precedent, needs to be a constant inspiration. But we often hear that nothing's working and nothing is good. That's also not true. Nobody's saying we need to only talk about the positives. But if we internalize the idea that something might work and that some things we've tried have worked, then we can definitely get stuff done. Whether it's protest, international partnership, regardless, we can do it. This is important to understand. When we really begin to believe that we can succeed, then the Russian Federation won't have a chance to play that card against us. We just need more time and a few more small victories. So you're saying that Ukraine just needs an ideology of hope? It's not an ideology of hope. You know this as a Ukrainian-American, but we feel it in Ukraine too. Ukrainians have a history problem. Ukrainians don't have a history of things going right. And the successes we've had, we don't know about. After years of war, resistance, occupations, and being at the crossroads of several colonizing nations, we've failed to mythologize a history of success. We've internalized a history of betrayal, suffering, trauma, and failure. Every healthy nation has a history of winning and losing. But for Ukrainians, there is no mythology of hope. It doesn't exist in literature or in art and definitely not in politics or history. We don't talk about success, even though it's in there. Open up any newspaper in Ukraine, and you get overwhelmed by all the trauma. But the things that go well for so, so, so many people are left unseen. The betrayal seems so big that it only fills people with disappointment. I think this is a major problem for us. Back to the question how people look at Ukraine through an ideological lens. You say that there is a positive resistance. Um, from my perspective as someone who follows Ukraine from the outside, even though I was born in the U.S., I speak Ukrainian, people often talk about how Ukraine's nationalism problem is antithetical to liberal democratic values. But Ukrainians say they're only resisting colonization, that they're just participating in a liberation movement. How can Ukrainians come to understand how they're being perceived abroad? And is it worth fighting off the notion that they're just bloodthirsty instead of being part of a national liberation movement? I don't think that there are some things that need to be explained. It's very difficult to tell peaceful Europe that Ukrainians are dying under the EU flag. This has never happened in the modern European Union. And yet, people want to leave the European Union. 
Yes, I don't think we need to convince anybody. Every war has a different face. War never has a pretty face. To say Ukraine is nice and perfect would not be true. But Ukraine is facing a very real war that has reopened a lot of historical trauma from the Russian colonialism. Beside the fact that people are dying, Today we lose a soldier every three days. In three years, 10,000 people have been killed. If we look at how Ukrainians behave, how they respect one another, yes, Ukrainians are misrepresented. Then you look at other countries where people hate each other, kill each other and leave bodies in the streets. This is notwithstanding the threat of colonialism. Ukraine is not just a nationalist country, it's a very, very, very open country. In many ways, Ukrainians need to understand they're a part of a global context. In some places, we could use some more nationalism, more suspicion of outsiders. For example, we trusted foreign countries with a deal to dismantle our nuclear arsenal. Now. We've lost some of our people and territory. We can't do anything about it at the moment. We gave up 2,000 nuclear warheads, and now we're in a situation where we can't even ask for a pistol to defend against a colonizer. This is shameful. Any shaming will be met with a reaction. This history is not over. There will be a lot of questions. The next generation will have questions. Це ми з вами розуміємо, що можливо були якісь історії, чому Сполучені Штати або тому Британія, або інші наші партнери не заступились, нічого не зробили. You and I understand why the US or UK or whoever didn't stand up for the liberation of Ukrainians. But what will the next generation say? Hopefully it's we are in the European Union now. What's next? When people talk about rolling back sanctions against the Russian Federation, which is killing our people on our land, when we see Hungary and Bulgaria criticizing our language protection laws, which we have every right to do since they don't take away anybody's language, when we see members of the European Parliament vacationing in Crimea, these are moral challenges. There are moral challenges that fly in the face of the standards that we've pulled our country up to. You told us to live by European values, and now our soldiers are dying, and you've forgotten those values. You've stopped talking about them. You're ready to negotiate with Russia just because you're losing money. Russia doesn't even have that much influence over Europeans' economy. These are percentages, not fractions of Europe that depend on Russia. And for this, you're ready to recognize the annexation of Crimea, murder of people, the violation of every international law, and then demand that Ukraine take additional steps will be skeptical. Ukraine's fight for independence is real. There are real injustices against Ukrainians. But Ukraine is a very tolerant country compared to other countries. Ukraine is a tolerant country
That was Worldview producer Julian Haidad talking with Mustafa Nayem, a Ukrainian-Afghan journalist. He started Ukraine's Maidan revolution four years ago. After the break, they'll continue the conversation on identity in Russia's ongoing war against Ukraine. I'm Steve Bynum, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum, in for Jerome McDonald. Before the break, Worldview's Julian Haida spoke with Ukrainian-Afghan journalist Mustafa Nayem. He started Ukraine's Maidan revolution. Since then, Russia has launched an offensive against Ukraine, including the annexation of Crimea and the creation of unrecognized puppet states in the eastern region of Donbass. Russia justified the invasions on the basis that Russian speakers in Ukraine were being discriminated against. That view is challenged by Ukraine and the West. Since 2014, 10,000 Ukrainians have been killed. Another 2 million have been displaced. Julian Haida takes the conversation from there. There's this constant attitude that Ukraine and Russia are equally sovereign and that it's just a simple dispute that they can sort out on their own. Ні, так ми так і так розв'язуємо це. Просто що інструментів немає зараз. Як розв'язувати? Розумієте, можна розв'язувати з кимось, домовлятися, говорити. We can solve this issue on our own. We just don't have the tools to do so. How can you solve a disagreement when one of the parties are irrational? How can you negotiate with a country where so many people are impoverished and makes a show of burning food imported from the European Union? These are irrational people. Russia is home to three million ethnic Ukrainians who live and work there, but they are called fascists. In my day-to-day life, I speak Russian. Russian is my native language. I have no problem in Ukraine. And Russia has the audacity to claim that Russian speakers are discriminated in Ukraine? I speak Russian. Yes, we can negotiate with the Russians, but they have to pull out their troops. They have to stop killing us. They need to stop killing us on our own territory. Once they leave eastern Ukraine and Crimea, then we'll talk. But I'm afraid, looking at history, that this will not happen very quickly. We will not be able to talk with the Russians as our friends in the near future. It's just not going to happen. You're a journalist. I actually studied to be an engineer, but yes, I ended up as a journalist. I think a lot of people in America after the election of Donald Trump are interested in the role of a journalist. Earlier you talked about battling ideologies and myths and raising people's hopes. Uh, What is the role of a journalist when it comes to showing what's going on in the government with the oligarchs or with people in power, people who are privileged? What's the role of a journalist when staring down major injustices? 
Знаєте, я не думаю, що ми можемо визначити якусь одну окрему роль журналістики. Журналісти мають бути різними. Мають бути журналісти, які роблять розслідування, весь час займатися тим, щоб викривати ці конюшні, в яких, знаєте, застала... I don't think we can triangulate one particular role for journalists. Journalists are supposed to be different. Some journalists should conduct investigations and peer into the walls of corruption. There are journalists who are supposed to follow politicians. There are even journalists who should become politicians. After all, you need to be tough to be in politics, and you have to be objective to the interests of your constituents. There should also be journalists who just write about what's going on in the country. Unfortunately, there is a lack of human interest stories in Ukraine, retrospectives about people and what they are doing, not just about politics. Everybody wants to write about politics. This is normal and good. But we are missing something when, for example, you go into the war zone in eastern Ukraine or deep into the mountains of western Ukraine, or into tiny villages, and you see how people still have the capacity to be really innovative and prosperous. On the flip side, people get discouraged when they do good work, but nobody notices its small effects. This has nothing to do with the government. A journalist should never be a spokesman for the government. Let the government budget for public relations and let them hire a press secretary. But it's very important to just write about society. Look at the war in eastern Ukraine. We don't only write about how many soldiers have died, we write about heroes. We write about the people who've persevered. We write about the people who have overcome all odds. We don't look at the bad in those cases. It's our responsibility to remember society, remember heroes. It should be like that everywhere. нас обов'язок це довести до суспільства, показати, хто герої. Так само має бути і в мирній території. But when you write about heroes, is it hard to be critical of the government? Да. Це я думаю, що більше того, це журналіст завжди має бути критичним до влади. Це Інстинкт. Ну, вовк не може бути травоядним. Це нонсенс. Це міф. Yes. A journalist should always be critical of government. This is an instinct. A wolf can be an herbivore. This is nonsense. This is a myth. He must be critical of government. Criticize the government. I'm saying this as someone who's in the government machine right now. I'm a member of parliament and I understand that I'm inviting criticism of myself and my colleagues. But it's my opinion that people in power shouldn't consider journalists a problem to be dealt with. This is just a different institution. It must be aggressive, critical, but it must never trust the government. It must be examining it. This sometimes leads to excesses that distort the truth, yes, it happens. But that doesn't mean that journalism needs to be dismantled, as some over here have argued. They say all journalists are bad because someone said something mean. No, just like how there are some politicians who take bribes and others who don't, this doesn't mean 
that we have to dismantle parliament. Journalists must be critical. And this is the inherent value of journalism. Journalism is a watchdog for who's doing right and who's doing wrong. Цінність журналістики в тому, щоб вона критикувала державу, розповідаючи людям, що вона робить правильно або неправильно. I'm interested in this because we have a huge conversation about fake news and its influence on ideological or partisan divides, as we talked about earlier. Not everything is transparent, not only in journalism, but in activism and so on. How do you know who to trust, who to work with, who to compromise with? It seems very hard, both here in America and in Ukraine. Знаєте, журналістика це ж не, не, не догадалки ми ходимо, а це реальні параметри і критерії роботи. Один з критеріїв роботи продукту журналістів, тобто критеріїв взагалі. Uh, you know, journalism isn't a guessing game. There's a real process, and there are ethics that go into the production of news. The main objective of journalism is to depict the full and accurate truth. If people stick to these standards, it doesn't matter if they transparently do so from an ideologically motivated perspective. Let them do it. It's not a problem. But when a journalist speaks a partial truth or says something that's inaccurate, That's deception. That's manipulation. In that case, you don't need to talk about ideology anymore. You need to say it's a lie. It deceives the audience, whether intentionally or not. When people make things up, no, they are doing something inaccurate with the intention to convince someone to their side. That's already propaganda. There is nothing to it. You just need to find... Who's not telling you the whole truth? And who stands to win from a lie? Some of the players do so intentionally. There are some people who destroy truth to get their way. There are other people who stick to their ideologies, but still maintain a sense of professionalism. This is normal. All you have to do is understand it. There is no magic medicine for deception. Це нормальна історія, нічого з цим не треба робити, просто треба аналізувати. Немає, знаєте, яких ліків, які б вилікували цю історію. Пан Мустафа, ще раз дякую, що ви Мустафа Найем, thank you so much for joining us. Дякую. was a Worldview producer, Julian Haida, talking with Mustafa Nayem, a Ukrainian-Afghan journalist. He started Ukraine's Maidan revolution four years ago. Mustafa's remarks were read by Serge Mikhailuk. Did you know that you can listen to Worldview wherever and whenever you want? Subscribe to the Worldview podcast in the iTunes Store, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
or click subscribe at wbez.org slash worldview. But remember, you can always catch us live tomorrow for more Worldview. Worldview Today was produced by Julian Haida, Galilee Abdullah, and Kyra Mitchell. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Steve Bynum, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.